Nachushkin feeds it back for Graves with a shot. It's blocked. He's got it again. Another one blocked in front. Pacioretty up for Stone. He's got room. Mark Stone scores! Mark Stone, overtime winner! And the Golden Knights are going home to Vegas with a chance to win the series. Hey now, welcome to the Sportscasters Podcast. My name is Steve Bennett. It's great to have you with me tonight. Season 11, chugging along here, middle of June. Not quite the middle. Paula's birthday is next week, Wednesday, which will make it to 16th. So it's seven days earlier than that. Wednesday, June 9th, 2021. I had some issues with the RSS feed and Apple and the update and the archives were kind of bad and it's delayed this podcast a little bit. But on Monday, I recorded an interview with John Champion, who covers the Major League Soccer. He calls the games for ESPN. He's their number one guy. And on Friday, he's going to be calling Italy and Turkey. Game one of Euro 2020 being played, of course, in 2021, although they're still going to call it Euro 2020. Really confusing. I did about 35 minutes with him. You'll hear it after the break. And that'll be awesome. The second interview today is one I've been sitting on for a while. And it's with the great Paige Hamilton, who's the singer, guitar player, primary musician of the heavy metal band Helmet, who I've been a fan of literally since 1993. Uh, And it was an honor to talk to Paige. I did it a few months ago. So keep that in mind. It's a few months old. Uh, But... I've been saving it for something, and this feels like the day to put it out. So on this podcast, John Champion talking the Euro and Paige Hamilton talking rock and roll. On the next podcast, there will be a one-hour interview with Jay Mariotti. Now, you might have a reason to hate Jay Mariotti. You may have a reason to love Jay Mariotti. You may not be sure if you love or hate him. You might be one of these people who kind of thinks you're supposed to hate him. Whatever it is, I promise you, you need to hear this interview because it was something else. And it's one hour and it's 58 minutes of him talking. And he went off on anything from Roger Ebert to ESPN to Barstool. I didn't know it hit me after an hour. Uh, So I can't wait for you to read that. But I'm a little behind. um, So I'm not going to do a long intro. not going to do any sports media news or anything like that today. So in a second, we're going to take a break. So here's the schedule for today. Quick podcast, in and out. Here's what we're going to do. We'll take a break. We'll come back with um, John Champion from ESPN. We'll talk Euro. Get ready for the 2021 Euro or the Euro 2020 being played in 2021. We'll take a break. We'll update the book club. There's some stuff to talk about there. And after that, Paige Hamilton from the band Helmet will join us. Do an hour with him. And then instead of one last thing today, we're going to do a segment, a new segment called I'd Know That Voice Anywhere. And uh, this segment is a tribute to Frank DeFord. I'm going to try it tonight. And a couple of years ago, he put out a book 
that's a compilation of the NPR segments he used to do. And I'm just going to read one. And that's going to be the segment. So that'll be, it'll be interesting to see the feedback on there, if people like it or not. But this podcast today will be up. And before you know it, there's going to be another one with Jay Mariotti. So I'm looking forward to that. And I got a bunch of interviews scheduled. So let's take a break. Let's get started. We'll be right back with John Champion. Our first guest tonight is the play-by-play man for MLS on ESPN. He also has a lifetime of great soccer credits, including World Cups and Euros. And is going to be on the call Friday when the Euro 2020 kicks off in Italy for Italy versus Turkey. A warm sportscaster's welcome for the very first time to John Champion. Mr. John Champion, welcome to the sportscasters. How are you doing today? Very good, thank you. Lovely to be with you. Yeah, I'm super excited about this tournament, you know. As a, I'll, t- I'll tell you real quickly my uh, the backstory here. So back in uh, 1994, I think the first soccer tournament I ever watched was the 1990 World Cup. And then the 1994 one was, cor- of course, in the United States. And my great-grandmother uh, was actually living with us at the time. And she was, um, you know, from Italy. And uh, we were watching the final together. Or I was watching the final. And I didn't kind of even realize that she was watching it because... I didn't think of her as someone who watched a sporting event. I don't think I'd ever seen her watch a sporting event in my life. And after Roberto Baggio kicked the uh, ball over the net uh, and Brazil had won, I looked back and she was crying. And I said, Grandma, wow, like, you're so upset. I didn't know you even liked soccer. And she explained that she wasn't upset about soccer. She was upset for Italy. She was sad for Italy. And then uh, when Italy did win in 2006, she had passed away. But uh, that night... Um, my brothers and I took some flowers to her grave and uh, said a prayer on 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 the on that glorious day with um, uh, Grasso getting the penalty and winning the World Cup. So I'm a huge fan of Italian soccer and of uh, the national team, and uh, because of that, it's been a long wait for a tournament like this with no uh, World Cup in 2018. So, with all that said, let's start here. Uh, how excited are you uh, to do Euro 2020? In 2021, after the delay, and ultimately, do you think that there'll be a little bit of a bump for this tournament because we've been waiting, you know, the extra year? Does that does that help the tournament at all, hurt the tournament? What do you think about the delay and how it will affect the, the tournament in general? Well, the first thing to say, Steve, is I think it's just great we've got a tournament at all because there have been times in the last 15, 16 months when we wondered whether Euro 2020 would take place in 2020. 2021, 2022, or sure. never at all. Right. So that's great. We've got a Euro. I think the will, the desire out there amongst the soccer-supporting public for a major tournament of this stature is amplified by the fact that we've all gone through these such strange times. Um, so I think, yes, there is a bump for it. I think set against that, my only concern about it, and this is it's not a downer because I'm sure the players will come through, is just that... The season in Europe, particularly for the top club players, has been so arduous. And for the Euros to take place, they've had to squeeze that club season that is already 
uh, a real marathon into a space of time that's about five weeks less than it normally would be. So these players have been mm. playing twice, sometimes three times a week, every week for nine months. And I just hope that that doesn't take the edge off some of their performances. I think that the adrenaline will see them through. And the fact that they're playing in front of crowds again, which is a big plus, will see them through. But in to your original base question, isn't it great that it's happening? I- I'm just thrilled that it is. <coughs> Excuse me. That's an interesting point about the the schedule because I had watched the uh, Amazon Prime series um, about the Spurs, and or I think you're just supposed to say Spurs, not the the. Apologize. Um, and I realized the drain on these players competing for the four trophies, how difficult that was for those players, and they had a, a crazy amount of injuries because of it. So now, you, you, like you said, you squeeze a little bit of more time, and and wow. I, I, that that's a really interesting concern. Uh, let's start with this. So, um, it's got to be the uh, the Germany group has got to be the group of death, right? I mean, when you look at the draw, is that the the first thing that comes to mind? Just when you look at the teams that qualified, how they're arranged, is is that is that group the one that jumps off? Is there something else when you look at the uh, the various the various groups that that jumps into your mind? Is something you're you're, you're eyeing for the tournament? I mean, there, there's plenty to pick out of each group, Steve. I mean, I, I'm delighted that you've correctly identified that there is a group of death because you appreciate that has to be oh, yeah, that looks a group of death. Brutal. That looks brutal. So this is my, something like my, yeah, this is my 16th sort of major tournament, World Cups and Euros. And I think there's been a group of death at every one. But this is a, this is a particularly, uh, uh, how can I put it? Yeah, well, it's just, it's just uh, the ultimate group of death, I think, really. Um, with that composition of, of France, world champions, uh, Portugal, European champions, Germany, perennial champions, but will they actually make it through the group this time? And Hungary, who are a rising force on the European stage. So that's the one that, that really darts out at me. But I think if you look at the other groups, you look at Group D and you've got England and Scotland paired together. I, I don't think Scotland are in the mix to actually win the tournament, uh, but I think they could make life particularly awkward for England and World Cup runners-up Croatia uh, particularly as there is home advantage to be had, and that's a, a big thing. I also think the Belgian group is is interesting because Denmark are, are no mugs. Finland, rather like Hungary, are a, a coming force. Uh, and Russia showed themselves at the World Cup that with yeah. home advantage, they too can be awkward customers. I mean, I was at that World Cup quarterfinal, Russia and Croatia in Sochi with Putin in the stands. And that was some experience being there and seeing Russia push Croatia all the way to a penalty shootout. So I just think with a, a few games to be had in St. Petersburg for Russia, that they could actually upset the apple cart in that group as well. And I think that's the, the beauty of a big in, international tournament. You have your group of death, but you also have your other groups of great intrigue. And there are plenty of those in this tournament. All right. Well, as we go through these different things, then I'm going to go back and talk about Italy for a second. So I have a specific focus there. So their group, they were the second team to qualify, but by a day or two. Uh, they they did great in the qualifying. They won all the games, uh, which was great after the nightmare of the, the lack of qualification for the World Cup, so they needed that for sure. Uh, they'll start with Turkey. That's the first game of the whole tournament, and I'm looking forward to that. 3 o'clock on Friday. I can't wait. Uh, Wales and Switzerland as well. Tell me about this group. Uh, are, are Italy the favorites? Is it someone else uh, who... who who is maybe uh, the, the, the going to be the most difficult match for them? Well, what about their group? Seems like they drew a pretty good one, um, but you know better than me, so set me straight on this. 
No, I think your thinking is right, Steve. I mean, uh, forgive me for not mentioning that group, Group A, the Italy group, in, yeah. in the groups of intrigue. Uh, and I, the reason I didn't was that I don't think it's a particularly intriguing group. I which think is you're right. In no way to denigrate Italy. I just think Italy are going to win that group. So it doesn't necessarily lend itself to a pre-tournament focus. But I think Italy as a team do. I mean, their rivalry with Switzerland is considerable, and Switzerland usually give them a tough game and succumb in the end, and Italy go away victorious. Wales, I don't think, are the force that they were five years ago at Euro 2016 when they got through to the latter stages of the tournament. Turkey are interesting, but that's probably a polite way of saying not quite good enough to trouble the leading team. So I think Italy, they don't, clearly they don't have a pass, through to the round of 16, but I would be astonished if they don't go through, and I think go through with a bit of style as well, judging by some of their performances and results of late. I watched them in a couple of their recent friendlies. I saw the game against the Czech Republic in Bologna at the weekend, and I thought they were excellent, and a much more expansive, uh, ambitious Italian team that we've often seen in the past. So I think Mancini deserves an awful lot of credit for that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because they've had some success in this tournament the last couple of times, you know, they lost to Spain in 2012 in the final. But, I mean, that's the one of the great teams, I think, in the history of the tournament. That that era of Spain in general, they, they were holding, I think, the World Cup and the Euro at the same time, which is impressive. And then last time around, you know, they won the group, uh, but maybe they would have been better off finishing second, uh, which I believe was Belgium, uh, because by winning the group, they set up this path that would have been like, Germany, France, I mean, it was just a deadly, deadly uh, path in the knockouts, much harder than the path uh, for the second. They end up losing in penalties. But um, this time around, it, you know, it does see, seem like uh, their, group to, their, their group to lose for sure. What about just kind of Italy's history in this tournament in general? They won it in 68 the one time, but uh, a bunch of uh, second places as well mixed in there. Um, seems like uh, this is one they've they found some success in the year over the years. Yeah, I mean, uh, you, you have to go back a long way to 1968 for that, sure. that one victory, the victory over Yugoslavia. I think it went to a replay in Rome, uh, that particular one. And of course, they've got the advantage of having their three group stage games in the Olympic Stadium in Rome uh, this time around. I remember the Italian side at 2000. Very, very good. Runners up in the end, they're beaten by a, a David Trezeguet golden goal. In yeah, the, the golden the goal. final against France yeah. in, in Rotterdam. Um, it was a concept that only lasted basically for that tournament and has never been seen again, thankfully. <laughs> um, and then 2012, of course, in, in Kiev against, as you say, one of the outstanding teams of the modern era in Spain. Quarterfinalists in 2016, that painful defeat in Bordeaux uh, on penalties uh, against Germany, having had some revenge over Spain earlier in the tournament. I, I look at this squad, which, of course, is 26 players rather than the usual 23. And the question marks that I have over it are, A a lack of tournament experience. So of those 26 players, only sure. eight have previously played in a major tournament. Seven of them were at Euro 2016. Five remain from the World Cup in 2014. And then you've got the veterans, the likes of Chiellini, who's at his sixth major tournament, Bonucci at his fifth. Curiously, the reserve goalkeeper, Sirigu, at his fourth. Um, but uh, I just wonder whether there is enough international tournament experience to see them through, because generally... When you look at the sides that win these events, they, are, uh, they do have a core of maybe 12, 15 players in their squad, normally of 23, who have been to multiple World Cups and Euros before. And this is not the case with this Italian squad. The other thing, and this may seem strange to say, bearing in mind they've been free scoring, is just whether at this rarefied level they can score the weight of goals that they will need to. Because 
you look at the lineup, uh, and there's been this ongoing search, hasn't there, for a, a reliable goal-scoring centre forward? And of course, in Immobile, you've got that at club level, but have you at international right, level? He Has he finally shaken yep. that that monkey from his back? He's done well in Serie A again this season. Twenty goals, the leading Italian scorer. But I think it's telling that if you look at the top ten goal scorers in Serie A this season, only three are actually Italian. So I just wonder whether the sufficient weight of goals will be there. Well, that's interesting, and you kind of mentioned this, because when I think of uh, the team and I think of Italian football, I think of, you know, defense, and um, Mm. I think of, you know, goalkeepers, and I think of that style, that, you know, winning a one nothing, and, you know, that's been the kind of the the way this team was, certainly the way they were when they won the, the World Cup in 2006. I think that the USA was maybe the only team to score a goal that wasn't a penalty on them until the final. Uh, but this is a different team. It's not built that way. You know, uh, they're, they're, it's the opposite of that from what I've been reading and what I've been studying, that this team is, is going to play a much different style. And you kind of mentioned it earlier. Uh, am I right? Is my, is my research, uh, has it treated me well there? Are they going to be a much different Italy team than we're used to in terms of a more attacking versus um, the opposite of a more defending? They are. They yeah. are. You're absolutely right. But of course, with that comes the responsibility to score goals because <laughs> you gotta get if you're going to be more... Yep. Yeah, because you are going to let them. Even if you've got Chiellini and Bellucci and maybe a Cherby if he plays and you've got a great goalkeeper, arguably the best in the world in Donnarumma, you are still going to concede, concede goals because sure. if you like, you're playing football having taken the safety catch off and the safety catch, in inverted commas, has been such a big part of Italian football over the years. So much to admire but not necessarily always particularly thrilling as they win 1-0 and 2-1 and 1-0 again and have the odd 0-0 draw. This is different. And what's really curious about it is that the coach, Mancini, at many of his clubs has been criticised for being too conservative in the past. (laughs) But he seems to have shrugged that off and he's built a side who are really pleasing on the eye. And this is going to be one of the great joys, I hope and I think, of this Euro, actually seeing an Italian side who are going to lift you out of your seat with excitement. All right, well, let's put them aside for a second, even though you got me really excited right now. But let's put them aside for a second. <laughs> Tell me about the other favorites. Give me four or five teams that you're thinking, man, they're going to be a tough out if they're an out at all in this thing. And why? Okay. okay. Uh, uh, this, it's not going to be particularly original, Steve. But France. <laughs> okay. They're the world champions. And yep. quite honestly, if I could give a vote to France's reserve team, they'd be up there amongst the favorites to win it as well because the Deep. depth of quality yeah. in their squad is extraordinary. But you look at the bookmakers' odds at the moment, and I mean, I would be saying lump on Italy, because certainly looking at a bookmaker's list I've got in front of me at the moment, good um, value. Italy are seventh favourite. Yeah, good so, value there. Yeah, there's, there's, there is real value there. Yeah. Ahead of them in this list are France, England. Not sure about that. I don't go a bundle on England's chances of winning this tournament. Belgium, who I think have got a great chance, albeit De Bruyne's injury is a, is a significant problem for them. But I can't understand the, uh, Germany being fourth in the bookmakers' list. And I struggle a bit with Portugal being fifth because I think Italy are better bets than either of those two. So um, you ask me for other favourites. France would be the ones that if I had to sort of stake my future and my mortgage and my house and my family's well-being on it, I would be saying, right, bet sure. on them. But, but Belgium would also be pushing up in that. And I also think Spain are beginning to come again as well. So they could be a threat. Let me ask you about England for a second because they fascinate me. And Harry Kane is, wow, what a player he is. You know, you don't even have to be. He's one of those one of those players where 
you don't need to be an expert on the sport to watch a game and say, wow, that guy is good at this. You know, he's just beautiful to watch. And and they fascinate me just because of the media and the pressure and how incredible it is. And it's like hockey in Canada, maybe, you know, or um, Dallas Cowboys football here or something. Just it feels like there's this extra layer of pressure from the intense scrutiny of the media and the fans and the thirst to win. Tell me a little bit more about this team. Obviously, I know Kane and how great he can be. And I'm excited to watch them during this tournament. Tell me a little bit more about them. Are they going to remind me a lot of the team who made the great run in the last World Cup? Or have they shifted a bit from that? I think they've shifted a bit from that. Um, I think one of their problems is the fact that they did do, relatively speaking, so well at the World Cup and went so close to winning the whole thing. And that's only served to ramp up the sense of expectation in a country that doesn't need much encouragement to think (laughs) unlikely thoughts about the prospects of its national team. So you've got a nation that is expecting England, particularly with the possibility of playing all but one of their matches if they go the distance at Wembley, so effectively at home. You've got this expectation that they're just going to sail through and probably win it. And I'm not sure that they are, not least because whilst they do have one of the world's great strikers in Harry Kane, who's absolutely up there with Mbappe and Lewandowski and that elite company, you look elsewhere in the team and they don't have similar levels of quality available to them. So central defence is a problem, particularly with Harry Maguire injured at the moment and a doubtful starter for the first few games. Central midfield, uh, all sorts of different combinations have been tried in the run-up friendlies for that. They've got a goalkeeper who is far from top level in Jordan Pickford, and the guy that might well have taken his place, Nick Pope, is now injured and out of the squad. They've just lost Trent Alexander-Arnold, who I think is terrific, the attacking right-back from from Liverpool, injured, out of the squad. So I don't see a whole lot within this England roster to think, well, can they go toe-to-toe with France or Belgium or possibly Italy in the knockout games that really matter? I don't doubt they'll get through the group. They'll probably get through the round of 16 as well. But quarterfinals and onwards, I think there's a big question mark against them. And that's a problem when you've got this huge level of expectation and this scrutiny that means that not just the back page of every national newspaper, but the front page as well is covered with football for a month. I got to ask you a slightly personal question. What's your phone like right now? Are you just getting blown up every day with friends and family and everyone just wanting to know? What can you tell me? Is there a scoop? I mean, what is it like for you as someone who covers the sport, is one of the great voices of the sport? Are people from home just all over you all the time? Yeah, there's a there's a there's a lot of contact. I mean, partly <laughs> partly from family, but also from from friends yeah. and and contacts and colleagues in the media over there as well, uh, sharing this huge sense of excitement that we have this tournament finally to get our teeth into. And you know, m- me and my fellow commentators over there, we compare notes and we we work on things like pronunciations, um, which is always very important. And we we try and make sure that we're we're going to be pretty accurate on on things like that. But in just in terms of the the tournament itself, yes, you can't fail. Um, to notice the uh, the increased level of activity on my phone, shall we say? And, and some friends have been very kind. I'm I'm sitting to you, uh, uh, talking to you here at my dining table in my little apartment in Boston, surrounded by piles of handwritten notes that I've been compiling for the, for the tournament for each team, but also by various magazines and newspapers and things that people in the UK have sent to me to help with my research. I'm looking at my Euro 2020 wall chart at the moment, which is an essential part of preparation for any tournament, which I will be assiduously filling in 
over the next four weeks with the winners of every particular game until we get to the final on the 11th of July. It's all part of the fun. That's awesome. You know, one thing I think of when I think of this tournament is is I think of Greece and that that magical tournament, right? And so, I mean, it, it, there's a precedent there. Is there a team you can pick out, not a country we think of when we think of soccer powers, you know, not a team that is relatively loved right now by Vegas. Is there a team that you think is kind of a dark horse that can make a run and shock the world like Greece did? What was it, what year? Was it 2000? No, I don't know. Yeah, I don't I mean, remember what year it yeah. was, but. Go ahead. Yeah, 2004. Four, that's Portugal. right, 2004. And they, yeah. and, and they, I mean, yes, they, they did shock the world, but they bored us stiff in the process. They were not the greatest that's team right. to watch. That's but, right. <laughs> but it was a great story. Sure. So we forgive them, we forgive them for that. Um, I think if you're, uh, if you're looking back to the history of this tournament, the greatest shock, not actually Greece in 2000, Denmark winning it in Sweden in 1992, because the story there was that Denmark didn't even qualify for the tournament. Yugoslavia did, and then the war broke out in Yugoslavia and the country fractured, and so they were thrown out of the tournament, and Denmark's players were summoned from various beaches across Europe and beyond and told, get yourselves together, get yourselves to Sweden, because you are in to replace Yugoslavia, and they only went and won the whole tournament. So it does show that anything is possible. So if you're looking down amongst the dark horses, in this tournament. I do, I do think that Ukraine will be quite interesting. They're in a group with the Netherlands, Austria and North Macedonia. And they've got the talent within their group to go quite deep, I think, in this tournament. I think Croatia will also be a force once again, having gone so close in the World Cup. And Poland, they are in with Spain. But if they can get out of that group, they could be dangerous, particularly with Lewandowski up top. Um, they are a, a proper football nation in terms of what they've achieved in the past but it's the distant path so i'd be looking possibly at ukraine and poland as making a bit of a run in this the sportscasters are here with uh, john champion he's getting ready to call the first game of the euro 2020 which is actually in 2021 on espn and i want to ask you a question about the coverage in a second uh, i'm going to let you go in a second too because I, I know your preparation and you're busy you're getting ready for this and I can't wait. I want to let you go and do it. But quickly, we talked about no, the Steve, teams. Steve, I've got, I've got as long as you want. The, right. the biggest thing on my, agenda, on my agenda today, apart from my notes, is actually taking my wife to Boston Airport to fly back to the UK. So okay. I'm sort of mixing, uh, mixing work and family things at the moment. But no, I've got all the time in the world to chat. Beautiful. Let's talk about the stars then for a second. I mentioned Harry Kane. Who are the stars of this tournament? Like, Who are the players that are going to you know, transcend their, their, their teams that are just the, I mean, some of them of course are going to be names we know. Is there a breakout yeah. star you think? Who, who are the stars of this tournament in your mind? Well, four years ago when Portugal won it, it was uh, a young player called Renato Sanchez who really took the eye. He was 18 and he seemed to have the world at his feet. And off the back of it, he got a move to Bayern Munich and it all went sour to the extent that he wasn't even included in the squad for World Cup 2018 by the Portuguese. He's back for this one, happily, having signed for Lille, who gone and won the French League, and he's been a big part of that. So there is a way back, but it just shows that whoever the star of this tournament is, or whoever's perceived as the breakout star, may not actually be the player that we're talking about in three or four years' time. But he has a teammate called Pedro Gonçalves, who is 22, plays for Sporting in Lisbon, and was the top scorer in the 
Portuguese Primeira Liga this year with 23 goals. Wow. And I think at a time where Ronaldo, well, we say it every tournament, but there are signs that Ronaldo is slightly on the wane and that they will require goals from elsewhere. Pedro Gonçalves, who's known colloquially as Pote, could be one to look out for in this tournament. I think if you look at the Spain side as well, they've got a very talented 18-year-old midfield player called Pedri, born in Tenerife, but who plays for Barcelona. Uh, made his debut for Las Palmas at the age of 16. Uh, and his debut uh, as an 18-year-old for the national team. So I think that he is a, another one that could come through. And I think uh, you always look for attacking players as uh, breakthrough stars. But I'll give you a defender as well. And it's another Spaniard called Pau Torres, uh, who plays for Villarreal, played in the Europa League final against Manchester United recently and i think that he is one that may well come to the fore in this tournament too interesting now the uh the unique thing about this tournament of course is uh all the different hosts all the different cities and each city is going to have a different capacity you know it's it's going to be really unique that way how do you think that affects the tournament i mean we you look back to the last world cup you know russia they definitely got a boost from hosting you know it seemed like they played fantastic in front of their home crowds pushed it all the way to penalties before they were eliminated. Um, that can certainly, in these big tournaments, you always look, okay, who's the host? What's their squad like? Because you think of a boost. Well, there's 12 hosts here. Italy um, is going to have a bunch of home games, which is great for them. You know, some teams aren't going to have as many. I know it's going to conclude at Wembley, which is cool. What do you think about the uniqueness of the different hosts and how that will affect the tournament? I mean, it's a fascinating concept. It was dreamt up by Michel Platini back in about 2012 when the idea was first mooted of spreading it across 12 nations. And of course, the idea of having a global pandemic was not in anyone's minds, which has right. made it a, a much more uh, difficult concept to actually get away with them. If there is a sadness to this tournament, it is that those of us covering the, the tournament for the US audience are not going to be there, or certainly not until the latter stages. Normally, we would be there traveling from right. venue to venue. And you get the true flavor. And that's just not possible because of the quarantine regulations that pertain in Europe at the moment. So we're going to be in Bristol, Connecticut for the majority of the time. And the hope is, uh, I'm being told I might be getting on a plane to go to Munich for a quarterfinal and then on to Wembley for the games after that. And I hope that happens. But as things stand at the moment, it can't because you've got to spend so long in, in quarantine. So we're, we're hoping for an easing of the regulations. But in terms of the structure of this tournament which is unique because it's spread so far and so wide i can see the attraction of it um i think that that idea of home advantage works up to a point and the reason that i say that is that say take england as an example if it was normal times then those games at wembley would be played in front of ninety thousand people as things stand at the moment it might only be a quarter full and i don't know whether that home advantage will still be quite as strong if you go to some of the other venues where the, uh, the re regulations have been uh, eased a little more, you go to St. Petersburg and Russia might have something much more close to a full house backing them when they have right. home games. So maybe that's more of an advantage for them. So certainly a factor. You look at it on paper and you would say, well, England have got, if they get that far, they've got the games that really matter at the business end of the tournament at Wembley. So that should play well for, for them. But until we actually get to see what these stadiums are going to be like with reduced capacities and how intimidating they actually are with empty seats in them, we're just not going to be able to assess how strong that advantage is going to be. Fair. Let me ask you this, and it might be a stretch, but how do you think the delay of this tournament might affect 
the European teams as we head into the World Cup in 2022. Will, will that matter at all? I mean, usually it's two years away. Now it's this. It's forced to be the summer before. Is, is this going to matter at all? Will it have any effect um, on the European squads at all when they go to World Cup in 2022? I think there will be two effects, um, and it, it's all hypothesizing and, and thinking about sure. something that we've never really been through before. But the gap being less than 18 months between the two tournaments, I think, does two things. One, it means that the bulk of the squads will be pretty much the same when they go to the World Cup. So there'll be more players than usual with previous tournament experience going to the World Cup. The other thing, and this is coming back to my initial point and your opening question, is when are the players going to get a break right. ahead of the World Cup? Because right. the way things are structured now, they've just finished an arduous club season, which basically was two seasons that ran into one because of the pandemic. Don't forget that last season in Europe finished in August, and by September they were playing again in a new season. But they come through that. They now have minimal rest and recovery time after the Euros. They start up again in August for a normal European season. And then the following club season is going to have to start a bit earlier so that they can build in a break for the World Cup in the middle of it. So I just wonder how much some of these players are going to have left to give by the time they get to Qatar in November of 2022. So I think there's a plus, which is not too much change or upheaval in the squads and plenty of tournament experience, which will serve the players well. But if they're completely knackered, what can they give? So a big imponderable there too. Right, and I guess they did catch a little bit of a break with it being in Qatar that they pushed it back to November, you know, in a normal... Well, they did, Steve, but the, yeah. but the problem is if you're a top player, you, by the time you get to Qatar, you'll have started your club season early, so your summer break next year will have been cut short, short. than usual. Oh, man. And you'll have played all the way through the group stages of the Champions League. You'll have played maybe half of your domestic season. It will all have been pushed together again to allow for a break of six weeks in the middle of the season. So my point is that, in fact, no, it's right. going to get even tougher than it's been so far. Yeah, you're right. Wow. Wow, what an unprecedented just toll we're, we're putting on the bodies of these athletes. Wow. It'll be interesting to see. It's surely going to be some attrition, I would think. Well, there, there is already. I mean, you yep. think of Sergio Ramos, one of the archetypal players who you would expect to be at a tournament with Spain, has succumbed to injury. And he's not the only one. I mean, you could probably pick out one, two, in some cases, three players from all the leading teams who are not there. You'll always lose one or two. But to lose the number of players that they've lost is unprecedented. And that is down to fatigue and injuries coming off the back of that fatigue. Well, John Champion is going to be calling these games, which is going to be on ESPN, which I love, uh, because they have all the different networks. Plus, they have the great, you know, app with the... Uh, ESPN Plus and watch ESPN, which you don't even need ESPN Plus to watch ESPN. And it's all in the same spot. It's really quite convenient there. And you're going to be working these games. Um, your partner, I have his name here, is going to be Taylor Twelman. How, 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 it is. Yeah. How do you guys? What's what's the come like with you two guys? One of your favorite partners. Well, someone, we, what's the come like there? Yeah, we we um we we have a good time yeah. because we we are sort of thrown together. We were thrown together to do MLS which sure. is our primary job on a weekly basis. So in, in normal times, we're used to traversing the country through day and night, um, endless plane journeys, spending lots of time in airports and hotels and restaurants the night before a game. So we, we do get on well, and hopefully that will, um, that will translate to, to this tournament as well when we're stuck together in a commentary booth somewhere deep in a bunker in Bristol, <laughs> Connecticut, looking at pictures flickering at us from a screen beamed from 3,000 miles away. 
you guys are the Buck and Aikman of MLS soccer, right? So now you're taking it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, listen, I can't wait for this. And you got me prepped. I feel like I'm ready to go now. And Friday can't get here soon enough. Is there anything else you want to plug or mention? Uh, I think I got everything that Hoffheimer asked me to get in. Is there anything you want to plug or mention? No, just that I think I think this will have the feeling of a proper festival of football about it. There, there have been some tournaments in the past where uh, maybe we've just taken it for granted and thought, well, here comes another World Cup or here comes another Euros. This time, because we were almost denied it, I think we're going to enjoy it that much more. And you asked me a really good question. Uh, is my phone blowing up at the moment with people getting in touch? Well, the answer was yes, but <laughs> what I'm getting is just an energy and a feeling of anticipation can't wait. and People eagerness can't wait. Yeah. for this to start. Yeah, and it, it's wonderful because it brings the soccer community around the world together. And it's not just this. It's the Copper America as well later in the summer. Um, but it, it, it's, it's a tournament that uh, many people argue is better than the World Cup because there are fewer teams and arguably the level of quality is more consistent across the tournament. So for that reason, I would say to people... If you've got space in your diary, block it off and just enjoy it with us. All right, let me get you out of here on this. Very last question, I promise. I know you called it, so I got to ask you to share your experience of the last couple minutes. Maybe you didn't call this game. I don't, I don't know. I know you, you called the 2006 World Cup, but what do you remember? Where were you? What was your experience with the last couple minutes? of the Italy-Germany game with the two goals. Was that a game you called? Were you watching? Were you in the stadium? What, just It's my favorite game of all time, obviously. Um, what, <laughs> what, what can you tell me about the uh, the incredible play by Pirlo and the Grasso goal and then the goal at the buzzer? And, and, and the, wow, what a, what, a, what a half hour that was. But what, what, can you, what can you tell me about it? Well, it seems like your recollection of it, Steve, is probably even more crystal clear than mine, judging by what you've <laughs> well, just I've said I've watched about it. it, you know, a couple times since. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the tape's nearly worn out. Right, it? exactly. Yeah. Just, it, I mean, yes, I was lucky enough to be there, and, and what a game. Um, and just, if I had to name my top four World Cup games of all time, it would be right in there. Yeah. So. I can give it no higher praise than that, really. I mean, it, it was difficult because as a commentator, you're supposed to have meaningful things coming out of your mouth. And I, my memory is just sitting there almost what was unfolding in front of us. It was just extraordinary. Some of those saves by Buffon getting the hand up there, you know, like some of those moments and just the what a great. Well, they make careers moments yeah. like that. They don't just make memories. They make careers and they secure people's places in in football legend and that certainly was the case with that game and the heroic performances of a number of italian players well listen i really appreciated this it was a great honor for me to have you and i want to get you back another time where i can just talk to you about you a little bit more i want to hear more about your career and the games you call i gotta gotta find out what the other three games are on that list for sure so (laughs) (laughs) when if if there's a such thing as a down moment on the soccer calendar right now i'm gonna have to get you back if you don't mind steve it's been it's been delightful talking to you and i'd love to come back thank you Too tall, could've used a few pounds 
tight pants points hollering down She was a black haired beauty with big dark eyes And points on her own sudden way up high Way up firm and high Out past the cornfields where the woods got heavy I want to thank John Champion for being on the podcast today. Can't wait for Euro 2020 to start on Friday. All right. With that said, we're done taking care of the night moves. We need to quickly update the book club. First things first, glory days. The summer of 1984 and the 90 days that changed sports and culture forever by L. John Wertheim. Now, I've always called him Wertheim, but I noticed people have been calling him Wertheim. So I wonder what's right, Wertheim or Worktime? I don't know. I like Wertheim better, but we'll ask him about that. Glory Days, the summer of 1984, and the 90 days that changed sports and culture forever. There was an excerpt on uh, SI.com recently that I enjoyed. Uh, The second book is by a fellow named Dave Jordan, and he co-authored this book uh, with Dave Parker. And it's called Parker. Or is it called Cobra? I don't know what it's called. <laughs> it's called Cobra. Oh, man. You got to love when I get up in the middle of the night to record these. Cobra, A Life of Baseball and Brotherhood by Dave Parker and Dave Jordan. I finished reading this. And it's a wild ride. It is a wild ride. The Life of Dave Parker is no joke. And it reads kind of like a narrative. It's a really cool book to read. I picked it up and put it down pretty quickly. Um, didn't realize I finished it because I just, once I got started, I guess I didn't stop, but I really, really enjoyed reading it and I appreciate, um, Dave and Dave and I have an interview scheduled. Um, so we'll be, uh, we'll be talking soon. So Wertheim or is it Wertheim and Dave Jordan. And then the third book I need to, uh, I need to schedule for soon. Um, And it's a book about the NBA and television and all that. It's called From Hang Time to Prime Time. And it's by Pete Croato. From Hang Time to Prime Time. And I got to read this one next uh, and have Pete on. So those are the three books we're working on right now. Uh, From Hang Time to Prime Time by Pete. I'm reading that next. Uh, Cobra by Dave Jordan and Dave Parker, which is unbelievably awesome. Can't wait to talk to him about it and talk to you about it. And then Glory Days by either John Wertheim or John Wertheim. (laughs) All right, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with an interview I did recently, but not that recently, but recently, a couple months ago with uh, Paige Hamilton from the rock and roll band Helmet. Our guest is from Oregon, and he is the lead guitar player, the singer, and songwriter for one of the great rock and roll bands of the 90s, 
someone I've been a fan of since 1993. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the amazingly talented Paige Hamilton. Paige Hamilton, welcome to the sportscasters. How are you, buddy? I'm doing well, Stephen. Nice to meet you. Yeah, this is an exciting day for me. I've been listening to Helmet. I don't want to make you feel any kind of way, but... So I'm 40 now, and I've been listening to Helmet since I was 13. So, long wow, time. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> Long time. Long time yeah. This so this is my funny like introduction to helmet story, you know. So like I think behind everyone's, you know, interest in music, there's someone older than them kind of guiding the way. And my my best friend, when I was like in the seventh grade, had an older brother who had a license, and he would drive us around, you know. And uh, we were listening to helmet. He was playing the in meantime. He's playing meantime, and uh, we're listening to it. We're going for a drive, and then a couple of days later, we're going for a drive again. And I was like, oh, you know, I was trying to tell him I wanted to listen to, to, to Meantime again. But I didn't know the name, whatever, you know. So I'm like trying to describe it. I'm like, I want to hear the band that had the two different singers. <laughs> he's like, he's like, what do you mean? I was like, well, the one song you played, the singer was all like, you know, and then the other song is like, da, 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 da. I'm like, you know, this that, that band. He's like, oh, no, that's the same guy, you dope. I was like, oh, I'm sorry, but I thought that. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's not that's that. cool. Yeah, so I've been a fan since then, and you owe me some shows. We were talking before. You'll know exactly when this is because it goes around your broken wrist, but I had the helmet weekend of helmet weekends on my calendar. There was a Buffalo show oh. and a Rochester show, Friday, Saturday, and then you broke your wrist riding your bike in Central Park or something like that. And the shows got canceled. Uh, kind of, kind of close. I broke my collarbone in the mountains in Oregon on a mountain bike. Okay, so yeah. I was almost yeah. there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you guys haven't been here since, so I'm still waiting for that. When, what year was that? Wow, that so that show got blown out then. Yeah, Buffalo and Rob, both of them got blown out, and they just got never got rescheduled or whatever. Sucks. Yeah, I know. What yeah, year was yeah. that? Uh, oh, oh, two thousand five, maybe four. Six, six, ever six, something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a that was a drag. The doctor told me, um, he said you you he said you can't go on tour for three months or whatever. And I was like, fuck that, I have to go out. <laughs> um, yeah, I went out after a month of, um, with the screws. I still have the screws in there, and but I just took a bunch of pain meds and did the tour. It was a uh, God. I'm sorry that Buffalo got blown out. I, I actually like it up there. I have a good. I was telling somebody I did a review. Um, the guy last from Buffalo, and I had a, I have a cool guitar that I bought there, um, and uh, I think it was like in a in a, a music store. It's a G and L. You know, I was in a band called Band of Susans, um, and the Band of Susans three of the members come from Buffalo. Oh, uh, nice. Ron, Ron, Robert, and Susan, I believe, are all from um, from Buffalo. So we had kind of a little family connection up there. Um, and uh, it was really, really nice in the summer. I've never, I've oh, never yeah. been to a winter. Yeah, really. <laughs> you know, the problem with the winter here is it's nice at first. You know, everyone's excited for a white Christmas. Then you get to this time of year, and everyone's just had enough. You know what I mean? Like, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's nice to have four seasons, except for when some of those seasons start to drag out. But, yeah, no, we'd love to have you again soon. And, but, you know, I was thinking about the early days. I was – the last two days preparing for this, I've been – listening to songs and watching videos and reading articles. And I remember, I was remembering the, my first years as a fan. And I remember one thing that I would track me to the band so much besides the fact that you had two great singers um, 
was that was that when I when I saw the first video, and I think the first video I saw was Wilma's Rainbow, because I just remember the people jumping and thinking like I want to be with them jumping. You know, like that looks so oh, yeah. that looks like so much fun. You know, like just that 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 the way they kind of edited that, where the jumping just totally goes with the with. The... Oh, it was cool. Yeah, that uh, that was at the uh, uh, some footage from the Reading Festival in in England. Yeah, you could tell it's uh, Europe. It looks like a Europe festival all the way. You know, it's just got that feel to it. Yeah, it looked like utter mayhem, right? Just yeah. like the dust, yeah. dirt, and people. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's fun. But that was a fun, a fun, um, fun era. We actually mixed a show from 1992 or three from uh, Australia, the big day out, um, and it was that that the crowds used to go really crazy back then. It was really fun. It was uh, just a different energy. Now, I mean, now we're older, and I, you know, you fans are older. You guys are in your 40s now, right. so <laughs> you know, yeah. Don't hurt I have me. To, yeah. Friends with people. There's a guy Patrick, who's a teacher in um, uh, Memphis. I'm actually writing a piece for his his uh, high school orchestra. It's the oldest high school orchestra in the country. Mem- so uh, Christian cool. Brothers in Memphis. Yeah, so cool. He he broke his nose at a helmet show. Gosh, 25 years ago, um, and he had this awful scar for the longest longest time. So I'd see him every couple of years on the road and I'd be like, Hey, your nose looks better. <laughs> I always said like, if, if you, if you didn't get an injury at a rock show in the nineties, you weren't going to rock shows in the nineties. Right. I remember my, yeah, my, very, my very first Pearl Jam show was at the, it was the first time I was ever in the, the, the when we got the old arena, we built the new arena. It was the first time I was ever there. And it was their first like show like that. They had had, um, they had had a, a like a soft opening that the Goo Goo Dolls and Annie DeFranco and the Philharmonic Orchestra played. This is the first time they had like the floor open and and I don't think they were quite ready for it. And I remember they started to play State of Love and Trust, and I was in the middle looking around thinking I might never get out of this. This this is the most insane thing ever. Um, wow. And, yeah, and sometimes those shows would be like that. But I remember us watching that video, and it's the first time I've seen you guys, and I'm like, and I don't think this is a silly thing. Especially it got really silly after like Metallica cut their hair and, and the Load album came out and all that. But I just remember at the time, uh, I remember at the time it had an impression on me that there was people who played in heavy metal, played in rock bands that didn't have long hair. And like the bass player has a ball cap on and, you know, they, you guys looked like me in some way. And I know it's a, maybe a silly thing, but I just related to it on some level like, wow, these guys rock, but they don't look like Sebastian Bach or something. You know what I mean? Like, not that I love Sebastian Bach. Like, what a voice, right? But, um, yeah. you know, that just resonated. Even the bands that, you know, I always tell people that when I was growing up, I had all these bands that my dad exposed me to and praised him for doing it. Amazing bands. And then the Seattle thing happened, and then I felt like I had my own bands. And then when you guys happened, or when I got, became a fan of you guys and other similar bands, I was like, wow, now there's these people because the Seattle people looked like not me either. You know, I didn't wear big boots and flannel shirts and have long hair or anything, you know. So, I don't know. There's just something about that. It, it just made me feel closer to the music in some way, you know. Strange, I guess, and yeah. maybe silly, but did, I did, felt that connection. Did, did Metallica cut their hair because of us? I think they must have. I think they saw <laughs> – they were all in San Francisco watching the, uh, watching the Wilma's Rainbow video and thinking like – Man, yeah, yeah. Long hair is out, right? <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. And I, I know it became such a polarizing thing then. But there was something about 
you know, feeling closer to the scene because I looked like the guys on the stage in some way. Yeah, I mean, you know, it wasn't it wasn't some master plan. We didn't have some fashion concept that we sat around and, and you know marketed. It was, it, I, you know, I love heavy music and I love jazz music and classical music and and I love I love a lot of styles of music and I always just thought music was about you know dropping the needle, listen to it and and um, so I didn't even I I, I could I could. Um, I, I just never cared about the fashion side of it. I mean, I think Bowie looked really cool and, and, and T-Rex and, and that kind of when people were dressed up and, you know, Nine Inch Nails puts on a big show and that's really cool. It looks good, but um, it just wasn't, it wasn't for me. You know, I just, I was, I'm lazy with it. I've been dressing the same since I was nine years old, you know, sneakers and Levi's that are, you know, just jeans, jeans and a t-shirt. And t-shirt. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, my buddy sent me a photo of of us in Boy Scouts before before and after we went on a Boy Scout camping trip, and we were all wearing white T-shirts, shorts, and 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 um, sneakers. And then you know, at the end of the trip, the white T-shirt was just brown. You know, <laughs> yeah, you got in the but woods I, and and were boys for a few days, yeah, right? And then, yeah, ex-wife. You- my ex-wife clothed me. She would buy all my clothes, and I was fine with that. So if you see all those pictures of me in goofy T-shirts in the 90s, like a rubber duck on it or, or a gap-striped T-shirt, that's because she, she always bought my clothes, and I didn't get shit, just so I didn't have to go. <laughs> yeah, as long as you didn't have to go to the mall, right? Yeah, I can't stand shopping. She would come <laughs> home, and it's like, I'm on sale at the Gap. I'm like, okay, cool great i'll wear them <laughs> yeah that'll work yeah th- it's it's interesting too because yeah there's some bands that that's so important to like i think today's the anniversary of kiss right and like i think kiss has songs but i know more about how much effort they put into the stage and the the makeup yeah. and all that you know and they're an extreme version you know but s- to some bands it's such an important thing and to other bands Wait, it's, it's like the- nah we're just here to play these songs or whatever today's the anniversary of what their first kiss. album i think maybe Oh, this is my mom's birthday today. Okay, yeah, happy birthday, Mrs. Mom. Yeah, amazing. She's the uh, she's. Uh, yeah, I saw she it this morning. She would have been eighty nine. She passed away a couple of years ago. She'd be eighty nine today. So, well, God, um, God bless yeah, your mom. Um, kiss, man. Yeah, kiss. That's I. Kiss is one of those bands you talk about older people uh, in your life. My cousins Rhonda and Carrie. They they turned me on to the Beatles, the Monkees, Kiss, and Jim Croce. Uh, cro- um, but those I remember that kind of like music is cool. We would dance in their basement and uh, all that music. You know that was you know having it. So I remember Rubber Soul, um, that Beatles album, and or Kiss Alive, and I remember Jim Croce. Um, you know, like a pine tree line in the winding road or something like that. A really cool song. Um, I got a name, yeah. And then um, uh, Monkeys. That was Last Train to Park. Those were those were early influences, I think. You know, just about the Eddie Eddie Trunk was. He says forty seven years old today. Kit the first Kiss album, where it's where it all started. So many classics. Wow, that's, yep. So that's that's what I saw earlier. Yep. Same as your mom's birthday. Um, yeah, I got to uh, got to know Gene a little bit. He's a Helmet fan. Really nice guy. Cool. That's really cool. I you were talking earlier about you know you like jazz and I, it's a funny thing. I was talking about, you know about my dad and you know when I started to have my own bands and he would be like ah oh, you know this band oh, they had too many power chords or whatever. But 
I, I was like, no, you got to hear this song on the helmet record. He's like, I'm like, this guy plays jazz too. I'm like, listen, I got some cred for him. You know, he would always, he'd always, he would always say like, okay, all right, that guy can play. All right. You got one guy who can play 67 CDs up there. You got one player, you know, like, or whatever. But, um, uh-huh. yeah, so, I, so thanks for putting that jazz, uh, thing on Betty because it got me some uh, cred with my dad that one of my, Oh, uh, that's, that's <laughs> hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I was thinking about that when I was when I was putting putting this together today too. But you know, it's interesting because it's interesting because there's some bands, um, you know that uh, we think of Kiss like that we were talking about them. You know, they're getting ready to maybe get to a point where no one who is in the band is in the band, right? Like there's been talk that when when uh, Gene and I guess it's Paul who are still there when they retire, they might you know like franchise out the name and and there'll be just four other guys in the in the costumes and then. You know, there's other bands where all the members are very, very important. You know, you couldn't imagine the band without one guy. Then there's like a band like Guns N' Roses, maybe, who you really just need Axel and Slash. You know, it's nice to have Duff there, too. But, you know, on the last reunion tour, no one was really that upset that, you know, um, uh, Izzy wasn't there, you know, or Steven. Some people were, but they did fine with just the three. When I think of a band like Helmet, I really think of you. You know, Helmet is Paige Hamilton. Uh, his band yeah. and I like the guys that were in the band and no disrespect to them you know um, who were in the band uh, for the early albums the classic lineup so to speak I, I respect those guys and I liked you know loved the fact that the one guy wore a baseball cap and whatever those guys are part of my history here but there's something yeah. about Helmet that it's Paige Hamilton's band right it's you so um, no matter what the lineup has been you know the only thing that matters is, is, is you it's your it's your thing it's your band why do you think it is that way? Like, wh- why do you think, you know, why do you think it is that way? I asked the same question twice well, instead of clarifying. I, the, if you think about, you know, the arrangements and the, you know, like, like you know, structurally, harmonically, I mean, um, you know, if you look at, I mean, I don't know, I can draw a parallel. Okay, the Los Angeles Philharmonic, it's, it's maybe a hundred players in an orchestra, but they're playing arrangements by everyone from Beethoven to Ray Fawn Williams to Stravinsky or whatever. Um, the, the helmet has helmet kind of like, um, once this sort of vocabulary was established, like, you know, I was walking home one night and I got the riff to repetition in my head and I picked the guitar up at four in the morning and to get that note, which was this note, a D, um, um, low, I had to um, detune the guitar, so I kind of, so the vocabulary kind of developed. Um, but if I didn't have um, musicians that were um, in tune with that, like you know, then I couldn't have I couldn't have executed whatever vision I had. You sure. know, if I had if you have a musical idea, you need great players. Helmet. It's really funny. People that don't know much about music or they hear they hear the aggressiveness of my voice of the music and they don't you know they don't understand the musical um the, the musical side of it like tm stevens a great bass player from the pretenders and he played with james brown and miles davis whatever he said you know helmet's like a big bowl of ice cream and then you dig in and there's spinach inside like your father saying you know oh this guy can play there's certain there's certain there's a musical background um, in helmet, like if I listen, I played classical guitar and I still play jazz every day. And I, you know, that, but I'm not 
trying to incorporate that stuff into Helmet, but it's there in the background somehow. And so I guess if, if someone else was the leader of Helmet, it wouldn't sound like it does. Um, but, but, but Kyle sounds very different from Stanier, sounds very different from John Tempesta. To me, they're all, right. they're all great. They're all great drummers um, in their own right. And, but they, but, but when I, when I insert them into my musical situation, they're going to, they're going to sound, you know, I, I make it work, you know, within the context of the arrangement, you know what I mean? Like sure. I write for, I need great musicians, you know, I can't have, if somebody's a hack, um, it's probably, they're probably, if they can't play three against four, they're probably not going to be able to play in helmet, you know? Um, and, and I think it's just, I mean, I'm the singer in the band. I'm the, I'm the uh, writer and I play lead guitar. So those are the kind of three, you know, major elements of, uh, of, of music, you know, some of the, right. you know, writing the words and the melodies and the, the arrangements and then playing the solos. It's, that's a lot of the, uh, kind of music. So I guess that's why, you know, John and Henry would say that, we don't, you know, and, and, but I loved what they brought to it. And, and some people are going to complain, Oh, you know, I missed the original lineup. And I'm like, well, they chose to move on, which, uh, you know, is, is absolutely their prerogative. You know, I mean, would it, would I have liked, would it be nice to keep the, the band together for 30 years? Yeah, but that's not that easy. You know, right. I don't know how you two, I don't know how you two does it. I mean, the Beatles lasted, or ZZ you Top. Know, ZZ Top is like the same three guys for fifty years or something, right? Incredible. Yeah, incredible. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a that's a feat in itself. You know, it's like really, it's really amazing. I mean, um, and that's you know, I mean, ACDC two brothers. You know what I mean? And right. they had their period at a different drummer, but they brought Phil back. But that lineup, aside from Bond dying, they kept that together for a long, long time. You know. Um, and have and still, um, I think, um, you know, for whatever reason, uh, Henry decided he wanted to move on, uh, and, and, and do, he was in, got into a different kind of music, uh, by the time we, um, uh, we broke up, you know, he was really into the lap steel and he was writing his own music and he had a, a group called the, I think the Moonlighters or something like that. That was, I think, uh, with a girl in Bliss blood i want to say um and uh that's cool and john um john i think felt like he didn't want to be the little brother for the rest of his life you know what i mean because if you're in a band that has a leader like helmet um and you want to do you have your own vision which obviously stanier is a incredible musician not just a great drummer yeah. his stuff that he's done in battles is is significant you know what i mean it's kind of i think they kind of expect took the, the the idea you know that that we had with helmet like a minimalist sort of glenn branca approach and 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 and, and their kind of did their instrumental take on it which is uh which is cool i, I i'm a big fan of um ty uh ty braxton ty and Dave braxton who's uh was in battles with john i think i think they did one or two records together. I don't know the history of the band that well, but I have his solo for his solo record, Central Market, and that guy's an amazing writer. He's just really, really great. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I take pride in the fact that I've had amazing musicians in my band, and and that John has gone on to do great things. And uh, yeah, I'm, it's 
it, it actually bums me out that we have no contact anymore. You know, I, cause I right. love, I love, I love what John and Henry did in, in, in helmet, you know, but, um, when Jimmy Iovine called me and asked me to make a helmet record, I wasn't going to say no, you know, uh, cause I missed, I missed that. I loved getting to do the stuff with David Bowie or Joe Henry or Ben Neal or Ellie Goldenthal, all these different people I've worked with, but there's nothing like helmet. I mean, it's just And that really was Size fun. Matters, right? Size Matters was that album that he wanted you to do, correct? Yes. Yeah. That was the first, yeah, yeah. album back. Which I love. It I- was fun. Yeah, Tepesta was, was it, we have a lifelong friendship and he and I, uh, uh, Johnny and Chris Trainer and I are, are talking about uh, uh, doing some music together as soon as I finish a few projects that I'm I'm doing a little movie right now, a CNN documentary, and um, uh, producing a couple of songs for bands around the world. But um, so then we're we're going to dig in and kind of do something. Johnny and I had a have a great musical connection, uh, much like Stanier and I had. Um, um, so it's you know you it's it's I can I can say when I wish I could have kept the original lineup together, but if I had, I wouldn't have met all these other great musicians and done right. and. Kyle, Kyle Stevenson played, I just did a recording for uh, uh, progresshumanity.org. It's an a, a organization in Washington, D.C. that's trying to end global conflict. And they asked me to do Let It Be um, to, to kind of raise awareness and money for, for them. And um, so and I, and I had Kyle play drums on a session. Kyle can play anything. If I, I produced a country singer and Kyle played drums on it. He, he's just phenomenal like he's just a he's a he's a he's a very different from stanier and from from tempesta but but uh they're all great you know johnny plays with the cult now and um uh i assume stanier's still with uh battles um uh but yeah it's it's so i, I kind of look at the glasses half full rather than oh man if those guys hadn't left still be doing the same thing or whatever i don't know maybe the music wouldn't be the same you know? yeah and you know i meant no disrespect obviously to henry and and to john and, and the original lineup but you know i think of a band like like there's a candle box is kind of really you know kevin martin's band and but i did see a couple of years ago they did like one-off show where they played the whole first album again at the Showbox, maybe or more theater one of those big seattle you know places i i know for whatever reason from years and years of people playing there but uh, they did get the lineup for like that one show to do it. You know, it's too bad Hamlet can do something like that where it's that one night, you know, where you play Meantime or Betty or whatever. You know, it's too bad. But yeah. like you said, people go people go their own ways, I guess. Yeah, it's, which is it, which is fine. I'm not going to sit around and feel um, feel crappy about it. Like I heard, um, I've heard, I've done so many interviews, and 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 I would see things like, oh well. The helmet breakup was caustic and really awful, and I'm like, it was. I, I like, I don't know where I. Maybe I missed something. Because <laughs> was was I there for the awful just, part? Yeah, I mean, Henry. We Henry um, wanted to move on, and I said, hey, could you just finish the tour? That was aftertaste, and so when we walked off stage, December tenth, nineteen ninety seven, that was that was it. And he and I had no animosity. I mean, I, I, unless there was something I didn't pick up on. I mean, we never had great communication, but I, I had nothing bad to say about those guys, you know, and we just, that was it. And then John had a couple of months to think about it. And he said, 
if it's just going to be Paige and I, I, I don't want to do it. So, so, uh, so I respect that, you know, and he, he actually told our manager, he didn't tell me, he told our manager, I'm going to move on. <laughs> oh, it's like, okay. Yeah. You know, well, I think some what people, can I do? <clears throat> some people watch too much behind the music. You know, they think every, every breakup is, you know, it's gotta be some like, right. like fucking, you know, like Fleetwood Mac drama or right, whatever. Right, right, right. The, if you TV aren't fucking, or you, now she's, but she had him kicked out of the band. Like, really? Like, that's pretty shit. Because he just took one fifth of this incredible creative force and, and, you know, kicked him to the curb. Well, like, that's just, she's, and that's, that, that band is, on the other hand, they got all those songwriters in that band. So, are they going to be able to do uh, what's the breakup song they did when they broke up? Go your, uh, own, go way. your own way. Yeah, she. Are they gonna... <laughs> she now, said. She said to him, "If you sing that line, that shacking up line, and go your own way one more time, I'm getting Neil Finn on the phone, you know, or something like that." Yeah. 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 I'm just pathetic. I mean, like the people, like you're, they're making millions of dollars, and right. and, and they took. That, there's no fucking way Fleetwood Mac's going to be as good without, without Lindsey Buckingham. Bucking. Yeah, you know, you're right. Yeah. Did you hear him? Did you hear him shredding that that uh, Killer song? He plays the solo and he plays all the guitar actually. In uh, I think it's called Caution. It was the first single off their new record, and they're like be- between guitar players. So they were. There's a bunch of like guest guitar players on it, and man, he just ridiculous. What a player, right? I mean, wow. Incredible. I mean, yeah. the ha- you know. Replace that guy and, and his voice. I mean, like, you know, like, come on. It's it's just, you know, people get so precious about shit. And I'm like, I'm not going to I'm not going to harbor some resentment or feud towards guys that left my band, you know, because they wanted to do something else like that's, you know, I, God bless them, man. I hope they hope they continue to success and do well. I, I, I played with them for a reason. You know what I mean? Right. I love the way they play, and they—they're you know if I—I'm not going to now because they quit my band. I'm not going to say they're assholes or they suck because they don't. They're great. <laughs> you know they really yeah. are. Well, let's talk um, about. Uh, let me talk about some of the great things you guys get dig together because I'd love to talk about a couple of these songs that you know I've been listening to all these years. And you know I think yeah. you know I think that for me you know. Top 20, if I have to rank them, it's hard for me not to put Unsung number one. I know that's a little on the nose, you know, and that's not to, yeah. that's not to say that, you know, I couldn't find room in my top 10 for, you know, I don't know, vaccination or something from um, Betty or, you <laughs> yeah. know, a deep track. I'm not saying that. Like, I go deep. I've been listening to these records for a long time. But still, Unsung to me yeah. is just that that when you – when the the, the – the, the guitar riff is going and you come in for the start of the second verse with to die unsung like oh man like that's a that's a moment in a song yeah. for me for all time what do you remember just about kind of creating unsung and and what about it's like longevity and it's the way it's evolved over the years i saw a great version where you were i think i want to say georgia i could be wrong about that and there's like a bunch of kids with the marching band type drums playing it with you on the stage and just like what an awesome yeah awesome song and, and it's evolution and what, but, but really what do you remember about kind of creating it initially first um 
that it was written in in a in a middle room with facing an air shaft in a New York City East Village tenement building with my now ex-wife and a roommate. So it was me, Ocean, and Flair. Flair's room was at uh, uh, at the end. It was a railroad flat, so you had to walk through her room to go use the the, the toilet. Then uh, there was a little tiny room in between that they let me use for my studio room. That's where I wrote, and that song took a long time to write because. Once like once the riff came to me, I um that that outro section that sort of harmonic development thing with where it goes to those series of chord changes, um, I was just kind of kind of learning that you know I mean the helmet vocabulary was still so new and I was you, you were I'm kind of constantly trying to expand it and do different things but um, yeah I just was very patient I was very patient with those the the, the chord progressions and it was. Um, I didn't know that it was gonna that it was gonna be a kind of a, a structure that hadn't really, I guess, previously existed. You know, like it's uh, got an intro, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, and then the rest of the song. You know, this sort of harmonic development idea, and um, it was fun. I mean, I was I don't I don't know what what I was thinking about. Uh, I, I I know that um, having toured with the Melvins was significant because uh, I, I loved them. I flipped out. <clears throat> we opened for them, the seven of us in one van. And Buzz has that kind of Aussie pentatonic melody thing, which I'm sung is. And to me, I was thinking of this kind of, Ozzy said to me, he goes, I was dropping, I'm not, you can't do his accent, <laughs> but I was dropping, driving in my car in Los Angeles and I heard this song on the radio and he said, I don't remember recording that. And I'm like, you know, and he goes, he goes, them boys did their fucking homework. And I'm like, that's Mr. Osborne. We do love black. But I actually, Unsung was more influenced by the Melvins, by by Buzz's and Buzz and Dale's kind of vocal thing that they do. The double, they're perfect together. I mean, their double vocal thing with the pentatonic melody. You know, that is a pentatonic vibe. Yeah. And, um, we had just finished touring with them. And so I had that thing stuck in my head and, you know, so it's like Buzz will probably try to claim songwriting now. Um, <laughs> but, uh, stay away yeah, to have I mean, the lawsuit 30 years, right? You'd be fighting over it now for 30 yeah. years. Yeah. It's cool that the song still is, it's still the most played, uh, most played song. It's not my favorite helmet song, but that's, that's, that's fun. I, I, what I understand is? why, um, God, it's hard to say. I really love Red Scare. Okay. Um, love, I love playing and singing that song. I think it's some of my best lyrics and, and, and harmonically, um, the harmonies in, in, in that song, which, um, the vocal guy that I've been working with for the last 20 years, Mark, Mark Rank, he's been such an instrument, so instrumental in me developing my singing and my harmonic, uh, you know, my, my, my um, you know, vocal harmony stuff. And I just think it's a really cool, it's got the helmet heavy dirgy kind of riff. It's got the helmet cool chord voicings that are very unique. Um, and, uh, and I like the lyrics a lot. You know, I, I just feel like it's, it's one of my best songs. I also like, um, I, I love my guru or I heart my guru, whatever you want to call it. Cause sure. it's got the kind of seven, four odd time signature thing. And it's a it's a song about, me and one of my best friends, who uh, is John Tempesta, who played drums with me, he and I having a night of 
you know, complete debauchery and being <laughs> two idiots doing drugs in bathrooms at at, at bars. You know, <laughs> I love that you. I love I, that you went to a dead to the world song right out of the gate, though. I love that. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I just I feel, I feel really. I love. I really love playing those songs live, and I feel I'm really proud of that album, and I feel like. Um, I, 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 some people, a guy told me, oh, his, his, he thinks our best album is monochrome and other people said aftertaste is hands down the best. And then a lot of people are like, well, I, I tune my stereo, my PA to Betty. Uh, so everybody has, is going to have a favorite, you know, like Kirk, Kirk from Flipside, whose photos are going to be featured on the live album that we're putting out from, he, he thought we got soft when we did meantime. He thought strap it on's the best album, hands down, <laughs> away but you guys got soft he actually said in a, in a in a piece he goes i expected a helmet and i got a bonnet because meantime was too oh, that, soft that's you know? funny that's a good quote though that's a good quote it's like when um, <laughs> it's funny it's like metallica yeah. getting shit for fade to black you know on um what, what was that on? Yeah. on ride the lightning or whatever their second album and they're already telling you, you you're too soft huh that's- yeah you know, people you have to do um that's why it's kind of proof that you can't. You have to have blinders on, and you can't sit around and listen to people, uh, to people's response to what you're doing. People are always gonna. I learned, you know, early on where I'm sitting on. I'm at the record label East West in uh, London, and up to that point, 1992, it, it, we had just had everybody blowing smoke up our ass. You're the greatest band ever. You're so phenomenal. This album's amazing, blah, blah, blah. And I read a bad review of Meantime. And I, and I was like, what, what, like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? Like, like, and he was offensive. He was, he was insulting me and my family practically. I mean, it was just this, like, and I, I, I sort of, it was my first exposure to the music industry and to like, uh, you know, this whole passive aggressive bullshit when people like, some some pansy can be in his basement sitting there and do nothing with his life but give you a fucking thumbs down on you know like i did so i'm doing some of these instructional videos for fun just because people have asked me for years show me how to play this song yeah super cool and some some dude's gonna give me a thumbs down i'm like because he doesn't like my fucking gray hair or whatever i don't (laughs) it's just what i just i never I stopped paying attention at that point. I stopped paying attention to what people say because it's my, um, it's my career. It's my musical career path. It's my musical path. It's my, um, it's my vision. It's not theirs. And if I had tried to, to do something that's responding to, to, to people around me, then I'd completely sold out. And I'm, and that's something like my friend, Tommy Victor from prong said to me, man, he goes, you stuck to your guns this entire time. He said, you never, you never were swayed off course. He said, when we, he told me, he said, when we signed to the major label, I thought we got to have a hit. And I changed the way I worked. And he said, he, he, you know, he did some stuff that he doesn't love. And, and, you know, you have to, you have to take the good with the bad. Some people are going to love what you do. And some people are going to fucking hate it. (laughs) You know? And it's like, I always made the joke. If, if, every, if everyone loved everything, then Michael Jackson would have sold more records. He should have sold a billion records, and he only sold like you know two hundred million. million. Yeah. Well, p- nobody, yeah. <laughs> nobody, lo- nobody hates achievement more than people who never achieved anything, right? So, um, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and you know, I always sometimes I look at the helmet records and I kind of split them 
pre aftertaste and after aftertaste, you know, and um, yeah, yeah, I guess it's a natural thing to do. And for me, I think I love size matters the most on the one side and and probably meantime the most on the other side. Meantime, it's tricky for me because it's just it's my first one. You know, sometimes the the album you fell in love with with almost any band, it's hard not to it's hard not to. um, like I love all the Killing Joke albums, but the first one's still my jam. That's right. the one we've covered. We've covered two songs off that Requiem and um, Primitive. It's but I got a man. I, what's this for? Is amazing. Nighttime's amazing. I love Fire Dances. I mean, I love you know I love their music. But that first album is always going to be if I if I'm on a desert island and I have to pick one Killing Joke album, that's the one. Right? Why? Why? With Wire, it would be Chairs Missing, but I love Pink Flag and 154 and A Bell is a Cup, and um, the album I played on, Object 47, is incredible. It's such a great record, you know? But yeah, I, I, I get that. You can't have... that. The one band that, that I go back and forth on, is it Highway to Hell or Power Age? No Power Age. No Highway to Hell. Right. No Power Age. Yeah, I no heard, Highway to Hell. Wolfie, Wolfie Van Halen was saying the album that him and his dad bonded on the most was power age i think the musicians love power age the most i think yeah i i no, i go back and forth i mean I've, yeah. I've, I've played i've played through every single song on highway to hell i'm not you know not the solos although i learned some i stole some licks from him um but it's it's, it's, a, it's a toss-up they're both amazing i mean the beatles like i love revolver because it's the beginning of something brand new not just in the Beatles development, but in, in music in rock, like they, they were mature. Right. The they end of the pop shit. era or whatever, the end of the hold my hand yeah. type songs. Got away. Uh, you know, I want to hold your hand. Right. And they yeah. were doing like, fucking, what is this crazy backwards shit? Tomorrow never knows drug fueled fucking psychedelic, cool shit. And tax man, you know I mean? Like, but I love, abbey road and i love the white album and i and i love help help is amazing you know what sure. i mean and hard to it's hard to you know it's kind of like what's your favorite beatles solo album god man it's like first mccartney or ram or imagine or plastic ono you know or or fucking all things must pass you know it's it's they're all they're all great so it's like i think it's really weird. Like I was thinking about this a couple of days ago, cause I've been doing a, an interview or two every week. And I was thinking like, when, when did people start, um, rating guitar players, rating albums, rating quarterbacks on football teams, rating the greatest of all time. Right. Like yep. how can you compare, how can you compare Tom Brady to Joe Montana? Yeah, Joe Montana. Joe Namath took, even. Took, yeah. Yeah. Took, thousand times more hard hits than tom brady because it was a different era the, right wide receivers could, you know, couldn't could, go through the middle like you know you couldn't just run a slant hold, right. yeah you could hold the shit out of the receivers or knock their fucking brains out yep. you can't fucking compare odell beckham to jerry wright yeah fuck off yeah you exactly know? no you're you right yeah and w- how do you compare jimmy page to you know, to fucking even Jeff Beck and Eric Clapton, let alone you know uh, I, I I don't know the guy from Creed, uh, well, which is Tremonte. Mark Tremont, yeah, or, or Tom or Tom Morello or Mike McCready, whoever, 
greatest guitar player. And like, you can't. Jimi Hendrix. Like, how do you come? And that that doesn't even take into consideration that you had Wes Montgomery, Joe Pass, Jim Hall, Tal Farlow, um, Charlie Christian, all these phenomenal fucking jazz guitar players. Oh, so, you know, Django Reinhardt. Like, so the greatest guitar player ever of all time is who? Like, who cares? Right. It doesn't, it, it's, it's fun to yeah. write about on the internet. That's all. People love to click on yeah, that shit, I just, right? I mean, I don't know. Oh, it lost touch a little bit, man. It's yeah. like the greatest people, like because of the because of exposure and, and money and album sales and stuff. It's like, do you think any of us could carry Mozart's luggage? Any of them? Like, right. like, come on, man. Like that was other level genius. Or Charlie Parker, who's not a household name. I mean. You know, that guy to me is the greatest musician that ever walked on the face of the earth. I think and the I, other and, thing, and... the other thing that makes those popular is people want to see their guy on top, right? Like, I've been a huge New Orleans Saints fan since since 1987, you know, a huge portion of my life. And when, yeah. I, when I see a top 50 quarterbacks list, all I want to know is like, okay, well, how high is Breeze? You know, like, because yeah. he's, he's yeah. my guy, you know, so I just want to see my guy, you know, up there. You know, that's all. You know, I think people like that. You know what I mean? Like, I... Best best rock, best rock metal albums of the '90s. I just want to see a helmet record on there. You know, is it ten? Is it twelve? Where is it? You know, I, yeah. just, I just want to see my guys on there. I think that's what it is. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I, uh, I, 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 it's never been the way that I've um, uh, viewed music or listened to music. It's not a marching band competition. It's not, you know, who's right. the who's the pretty. I mean, I've had people tell me or read people reading the reviews. Somebody didn't like me because my teeth were straight or because he said I was <laughs> handsome. Actually, he's very handsome. I'm like, what the fuck does that have to do with my guitar playing, my singing, and my writing? It's like you know? the opposite I of the to... dumb shit I said to you earlier about liking you because because you had the choice. It's like the opposite of that, right? Someone who didn't yeah, like you. Yeah. yeah. Um, let me ask People you. People are offended. Yeah, let me ask you this. I don't know if you've ever seen it. There's a Rush documentary. Um, I think it's called All the World's a Stage, something like that. But uh, Jack Black talks really well in it. And one thing he says I think is really interesting, he's kind of talking about the longevity of the band. And he's like, everyone who's ever wrote a song, he's like, they kind of get a, a bottle of ketchup. And then when they write their first song, it's almost like you flip the ketchup bottle over. And he's like, you know, some bands, they got enough in the bottle for one album, you know, some are four, some are five. And I think his point is that like, you know, Rush has been flipping that bottle of ketchup over for 40 years and there's still, I think he calls it awesome sauce coming out. Do you ever think about, <laughs> what about Paige Hamilton? You flip your ketchup bottle over, how much more ketchup you think you got in there? You still hitting that thing? And I mean, I'm still loving the albums. I mean, you just went to, I asked you your favorite helmet, helmet song and you right away, you went to a Dead of the World track. So clearly you you're cool. So like how much you think you got in there? How much more do you want to, how many more, uh, how much more awesome sauce you got? Well, I don't have, I, I don't have an end until I die. Right. So that sure. to, to me, to, to, uh, you know, to me, I'm not just, it's not just helmet. Like I'm writing this piece, um, like, you know, for, for, for the, uh, Christian brothers high school in Memphis is a completely different style of music. And I think it's, I have to use the instrumentation for the, uh, for what they have in the, in their school, you know what I mean. So that's that's, and I'm also uh, I, I'm I'm beefing up my home because I, I, I now that I have this little home studio, I've, I've moved in March to my own place, so I've been able to make my sort of dream home studio or dream within my budget, and 
Um, I, I have this piece that I'm that I, I've started that's going to be for electric guitar and an orchestra. And in, in my fantasy world, it's going to be a hundred fucking piece orchestra. And so that's you know, um, so that's I mean, I also want to do another helmet album, but I also want to do a jazz album. And you know, so I mean, I have I don't know what what else to do with my life at this point. I've painted myself in a corner. I play <laughs> guitar, I sing, right. I sing, and I compose. So so it's all. But you know, there'll there'll be another Helmet album, and and um, I already have some some cool riffs and some ideas, um, and yeah, I mean it's it's gonna I'm gonna keep going until I you know, until I drop dead. I mean I don't know what else to do. Couple more, and I'll let you go. Um, cool. Uh, we were talking about about songs earlier, and I was telling you the silly story about how I thought there was two two singers in the band, and you know, there's this big yeah. thing, there's this big thing about, like, tracks, right? And Like, I can't stand even the idea that rock and roll bands are using tracks on stage, and then you get to singers, and it's like, well, some people, they can still sing their stuff, but they kind of take it down an octave, and that's all right, because at least they're still singing it, you know, they're not using a track or anything like that. And think about you, do you ever wish that you had that one guy in the band a little bit more than the other guy in the band? Is either your style is easier or harder to sing? You know, when you're putting a set list together, you're thinking like, all right, maybe we got to save Tick for a little bit later here. Let's, you know, put in, you know, something easier to sing up here. What about your your singing and your style and how it translates to stage? And now I think, you know, I think it was um, maybe Steve Perry who said, like, if I knew I was going to sing this long, I wouldn't have sang so damn high or something like that. What about? <laughs> funny. Well, I mean, I, the, um, I when I uh, Wharton Tears, who who uh, recorded Strap It On in Meantime, he didn't mix Meantime, but he um, he said, "Man, Paige, you have you you are the the strongest diaphragm, the loudest singer of anyone that I've ever had in the studio." And um, I think because of Stanier, the, his volume and his twenty-two inch Earthride cymbals that he used for crashes, I had to learn to to project. Sure. So I have no. I mean, as long as my voice holds up and we just did the 30th anniversary um tour which we were long shows doing yeah yeah we 30 songs yep and so we were going to do that in australia new zealand and japan until the until the pandemic hit um which we'll do next year uh or at the end of this year or early next year so as long as my you know i feel strong and i feel like i've i've over 30 31 32 years of touring and and writing i've learned you know i i i if you hear this there's an interview our um, art the guy that does our artwork for our album covers richard is in melbourne and he sent me an interview with me after the big day out show in um, australia and i was I, we had been drinking like fish john and henry and i were inseparable and drinking coopers and staying up all night and then did a show and i sound hoarse after the show well now i don't if you hear me you know, after the first couple of shows when I'm kind of warmed up and broken in, I don't sound hoarse because I don't sing the wrong way. You know, I don't sing. Right. I'm not laying on. You've learned how to use I the mean, instrument better. You've learned how to use that instrument better, just like the guitar. Yeah. yeah. I mean, is there be a day where I won't be able to do a blood curdling scream? Yeah, possibly. I don't know. But until that, until that day, I think that's when I'll have to hang it up, you know, right. and just, just stick to my jazz fantasy, you know. There's a there's a band in Buffalo called the Sheila Divine. Well, they're kind of from Buffalo, kind of from Boston. Anyway, the, the singer was on here, and he's saying that he has got the three Bs, Buffalo, Belgium, and Boston. And I think my show, I'm pretty popular in Buffalo, as I'm from here. You know, uh, New Orleans, I talk a lot of Saints football sometimes, and then Colorado, because I did a hockey podcast with uh, 
a writer in Denver once. But so like, is there does Helmet have that? Are there certain like are there certain really strong markets for Helmet, or is it sort of the the oh, same or what? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, we we do Melbourne. Um, I thought Australia, Australia. Yeah, I thought that was sort of a huge hold for you guys. Yeah, it's pretty, Melbourne is amazing. Um, we do really well there. Um, we do well in in uh, Hamburg in Germany. Um, in Germany in general, because I studied there as an exchange student, and so I I speak German. Uh, we do well. I mean, I always feel really good about New York, like we did. Yep. Um, the last. The last tour, the 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 show sold out so fast that, and and on Betty we sold it out so fast that we added a second show and that sold out. So in New York, because the band is originally from there, I think New York's a really good place for us to play. Um, and um, yeah, I mean the cities like Minneapolis and Chicago always seem to be really great. You know, knock on wood. I hope it uh, it, it keeps up. Um, and um, I'm trying to think where else London is a great place for us. You know, the cities where there are more, more people and you know, that cause we're in sense, we're not like a mainstream middle of the road band. Right. So we like in, in some of the smaller towns that we might, you know, we might not be as, as well known, I guess. I don't know. I just, I love you talk about those 30 by 30 by 30 shows. And first of all, you know, like, it frustrates me sometimes when certain bands, you know, they play the same set list over and over. And I think like, man, you're too talented for that in my mind, you know, but whatever the, these shows have been like looking at the set list from afar. have been so great. It's been so long since like we were talking about how you were three months. The doctor said, you're like, no, I gotta get out there in one month. Imagine if someone would have told you about this, how long it's been since shows, you know, I'm just about at one year since I see my last show, which is by far the longest since I started going, you know, and I can't imagine for someone, a player like you, what this would be like, but talk about putting the shows together because I feel like as the band has gone on, you've, you've been so great about keeping the shows long. The set list varied. Every show is different. You know, I see, I, I would go to a show in Cleveland. I'd see the, the set list to Chicago the next night. Be like, ah, God damn, I should have kept on the 90, you know, and went to that Chicago show. I could have saw see you dead or whatever there and i don't know uh, you know it just that's what i that, those are the bands that drive me but what about putting these shows together and and kind of do you always do you always envision it being that way is there a part of you that wishes ah maybe i wish it was just the same 16 17 every night you know 90 minutes we're still gonna no, get paid like a headliner like what what's your vibe on it yeah i mean i like i, I prefer headline tours where we to be honest with you where we have no opening band so we can play oh, as many it. songs if you want and, and i mean i love we've had great opening bands over the years and band, you know, i had the you know jesus lizard and melvin's and uh you know therapy and obviously local h we love um the the, the dub trio we've seen had some great bands come on come on tour with us or whatever but um i just i love having the freedom to do you know to do as many songs i mean sometimes i think my band's bandmates look at me like I'm crazy. They're like, do you want to do another song? And I'm like, and I said, Hey, they're, they're into it and they're enjoying it. And right. if, if the old, the old man can do it, you can hack it. So, sure. um, you I, know, that's like, I thought they'd me, be more like what, what song off after tasty want to play? Like what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, they, no, they, they love it. But I think, you know, um, the one thing, if they're, they're my songs, you know, that I wrote and recorded or whatever. And so, for me, of course, it's fun to play, you know, play a 30 song set, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, for a band, if, if the band's just done, 
you know, 30 shows, 30 songs, and they're they're in show 59. You know, I can I can imagine they get all tired, you know, but it's they, the band loves it. I mean, I think, you know, the tour we're planning now, we're releasing um, a, a four, four, seven inches uh, as a box set of cover songs. And so we're going to do like a, a tour where we kind of pay homage to people that influenced us you know so it's it's going to be a uh you know covers tour and and then we'll play some i think i call them the old chestnuts you know sure <laughs> so well you know, but um listen Paige hamilton is the singer songwriter and the driving force behind the band how went i've been listening since 1993 you know i i started this show in 2011 because i had read a book called oh, death, okay. called death to the bcs um I don't even remember the BCS. It was the silly way they were deciding the college football national championship for a while. And uh, yeah. I, read, I read this book over Christmas, and I'm like, man, I'd like to talk to these guys about it. And I was like, well, maybe if I have a podcast, I can call them. And it worked out. And for 10 years now, I've been calling people who, you know, to talk to them about shit I like. And what an honor for me to have oh, cool. an hour with you today. I really appreciate it. Now, honestly, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for – every bus ride to high school with the Walkman or, you know, car ride or whatever, like the years of music and entertainment, like it's been so much for me. Thank you so much. What at the end of this, is there anything you want to promote or tell my people to go to or listen or what's the best way to follow what you're doing? Cause you got all these projects here and there and people are going to want to keep on them. How do we, uh, what's the best way to do it? You think, what else do you want? Anything um, you want to promote? Or? My manager, who's like my big brother, has through this pandemic has done so many cool things. He helped me um, set up a little YouTube thing that I'm I, I'm sorely uh, behind on doing these videos for. So I, I've been I've been doing these lessons that people have asked me about for 30 years. I used to teach in New York City, and then I taught at University of Oregon uh, under my, my my teacher. So that's been really fun, and I've, I've been producing um, producing remote producing bands. I just finished a band from South. France from Provence and a band from Brooklyn and I have a band from Chicago up on the front burner now. So that stuff's been really fun. If, anybody, if you guys want me to go through your, um, through your music, I've been doing that, like trying to, trying to occupy myself during this pandemic. And, oh, so, and the lyrics, and then I'm, the lyrics right now, the lyrics, you should mention that. Oh yeah. We, the lyrics. Yeah. That was, that was, that's really, really fun. I think they were open that up again. We're doing, we're going to release my, uh, the Paige Hamilton magenta guitar again as well. So, um, we just, just kind of got that. I'm not sure if they've posted it yet, but that's, that's, I'm really excited about that. Cause that was, uh, um, I really, I'm really proud of that, uh, you know, guitar, the signature model. So that's coming out again. And we also did my, uh, Paige Hamilton distortion pedals. Uh, Dennis at Protone pedals is a brilliant pedal designer. Um, but yeah, I've been trying to talk Stevie at VHT or not talk him into, but one of his sales guys had mentioned, should we, let's do a Paige Hamilton, signature uh you know fryet amp but stevie doesn't like to do signature models but i'm i think it'd be really cool to have a, a, a you know page hamilton amp so just that the page hamilton music.com and helmet music.com those are the, the places and there's a bunch of stuff on there for all this all this stuff i'm i'm working on you know and the um, instagram but I, the instagram's cool too because you can see some clips of the lessons and stuff on there um oh cool yeah page hamilton underscore is the instagram or at helmet underscore music are the Instagrams. Uh, okay. Is there some cool clips Great. on there? Yeah. 
I will admit I have a lot of help with that stuff. I post every once in a while, but they, they're um, really good at that. I'm just not great on social media. <laughs> Do you have any questions for me? No, I, okay. I think I better. <laughs> right. I appreciate, listen, I appreciate this so much. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I, I just, for my everything. Pleasure. Yeah. All right. Be, be well. Me, be well. Okay. All right. Stay, yeah. You stay safe. I want to thank Paige Hamilton and John Champion for being on the podcast today. Don't forget, you can find this episode and all episodes of the podcast on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can also find us on sportscasters. You can also find the sportscasters on Twitter at sports underscore casters. You can email me, the sportscasters at gmail.com. Now, I said earlier I've been having a little bit of trouble with Apple Podcasts. Ever since the latest iOS update to 14.5 or 14.6, whatever one it was. So just keep in mind, if I'm saying an episode is out, but you're not seeing it on Apple, it's probably on Spotify or SoundCloud or Overcast or anywhere else. Because the only one I'm having any problems with is Apple, and I don't know why. Uh, So keep that in mind. Don't forget to check out Greetings from Allentown. It's at GF Allentown Pod. You can find my friend Peter Winston there. With his two podcasts, Greetings from Allentown and Greetings from Allentown Live with Keithy. Uh, we still have plans to do an Adams Division podcast. Not sure why we haven't, but now that the Bruins are out, hopefully he'll have more time and we will soon. Until the Avalanche are out, make sure you check out Adrian Dater at A Dater on Twitter there. Check out my latest appearance on the Place to Be Nation podcast with Justin and Scott. I was on last week. You should be able to find that near the top of their feed, Place to Be Nation dot com for more on that okay with all that said we're going to try something new today uh normally we do one last thing uh but instead of doing one last thing i am going to try to pay tribute to one of the all-time greats who appeared on this show before his passing away uh his name is frank DeFord, and for years frank DeFord uh prepared a little bit of a monologue or something like that for npr and he would come on to National Public Radio, and he would read a story to the public that he wrote, a thought or whatever. And look at I've been a huge fan of Frank DeFord, um, and when the book came out, I, I blazed through them all, and I thought maybe it'll be fun someday to on the podcast just read one of these, you know, and uh, and see where that goes. But uh. I haven't done it until finally I am now, and I'm excited to do it, and the Olympics has been in the news, so I'm going to go back to 2012 uh, for a piece that he read on NPR that ended with, or started with the question, why do we like the Olympics? It's titled The Groundhog Games from 2012. This is Frank DeFord, and the segment is If I Know... I'd know that voice anywhere. Let's see how this goes. Disaster so far. Let's see if I can pick it up. Why do we like the Olympics? Or if somebody hadn't thought to start them up again 167 years ago, 
Would ESPN have invented them to fill in summer programming? I'm not being cranky. It's just that most of the most popular Olympic sports are really the groundhog games. Swimming, gymnastics, and track and field come out every four years, see their shadow, and go right back underground where no one pays attention to them for another four years. Can you even name a gymnast? Okay, track and swimming. Maybe you've heard about Usain Bolt, and certainly you know Michael Phelps, but that slim picking for two weeks in what's supposed to be a celebrity-driven world. The Olympics are like an independent movie with foreign actors you've never heard of, especially since air travel came along. Most sports have their own world championships. The world's athletes don't have to come all together in a smorgasbord every four years anymore. The soccer, the soccer people are smart. They don't want the Olympics to horn in on their World Cup. So they pretty much limit the men's Olympic rosters to players age 23 and younger, which means that the Olympics are like a junior varsity soccer championship. Wisely, the NBA wants to institute the same kind of rules for basketball. If you make the Olympics a JV tournament, basketball's old world championship becomes more valuable. But then the upside down thing about the Olympic Games is that the night they don't play any games at all, the opening ceremony gets the biggest audience. More people want to watch the competitors from Paraguay and Slovenia just amble around the track in their business casual clothes than they want to watch Mr. Phelps in his swim trunks. It's equivalent to the red carpet at the Academy Awards getting a larger audience than when they actually open up the Oscar envelopes. Simply, the Olympics are just not like other big-time sports stuff. At the Olympics, athletes talk about wanting to medal, which is a verb that includes third place. In every other competition, the ghost of Vince Lombardi lives on, and winning is the only thing. I guess at the end of the day, we like the Olympics precisely because they are so different. Dare I say it, the Olympics are sort of innocent. Emphasis on the kind of sort of. But still, sometimes in the middle of the summer, it's just good enough to take a break and watch a quaint hockey ceremony and then cheer for people you never heard of in a sport you don't care about just because, well, just because. And best of all, the United States. The Summer Olympics always come in election year and gives us two weeks off from the eternal campaign. Just think, if it wasn't for the Olympics, now you'd be hearing about Rob Portman or Tim Pawlenty. Instead, you'll be hearing about Jordan Weaver. Who? <laughs> now you know a gymnast. Let the opening ceremony begin. And I wanted to read that one today, and rest in peace, Frank DeFord, because, man, his whole reason for loving the Olympics is gone this year. Because of the delay, it's not in an election year. So we didn't get that break, but boy, we could have used it last week. So that was a good point, I suppose, uh, there, because, man, it would have been nice to have two weeks off. Uh, from what was a crazy election cycle last time around. I'd know that voice anywhere. Frank DeFord's favorite NPR commentaries. We just read one today for you. Rest in peace, Frank. Fun to do that. I'll do it every once in a while. It's not going to be every week or every episode. I'll mix one in maybe a month. The rest of the time I'll do one last thing. And maybe I'll come up with another gimmick or two to mix in there. But I just really appreciate everyone who's on today. Thanks to John Champion uh, for being on. And thanks to Paige Hamilton uh, for doing the interview with me in the first place. Way back when we did. And thanks for being patient about it coming out. Hamilton's going to be in Buffalo in October. I look forward to that. Uh, but see you next week. <laughs>